Previously on Flying the Line, the unique experiences of Charles Ruby's life and career made him an unlikely choice for the association's president. But due to the circumstances surrounding the departures of his predecessors and the place Alba was in at the time of his election, Charlie Ruby turned out to be the right man at the right place at the right time. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 20, Charlie Ruby's Hour, Part 2. Many challenges confronted Ruby when he took office in 1962. He handled some better than others. The bitter Southern Airways strike was in the process of being settled, thanks in large part to former ALBA president Clancy Sayan's legwork. But Ruby was able to close it successfully. In the matter of ALBA's finances, Ruby was well-suited to clean things up. Put simply, he was a notorious penny-pincher, so frugal that it irritated some pilots. Charlie Ruby's first duty upon taking office was to order a thorough audit. What he heard was good news. Alpa's financial situation was tight, but not desperate. There was a cash flow problem owing to the heavy expenses of the Southern Airways strike and the flight pay loss associated with the protracted United Airlines-Capital Airlines merger. But both these episodes were winding down and as Ruby discovered to his delight, the value of Alpa's real estate holdings in Chicago, principally the building at 55th and Cicero, put Alpa's accounts well into the black. As for administering Alpa's internal affairs, Ruby was better than saying. Careful, calm, and deliberate, a detailed-oriented person in the best sense of the word, Ruby brought to the Chicago headquarters a clarity of purpose that was in the best tradition of the nuts-and-bolts type who had made ALPA's technical committees models of productivity for so long. So why did he only narrowly survive recall in 1968 and eventually lead a badly divided ALPA through the end of his presidency in 1970? Nobody blamed Charlie Ruby for the defection of the American Airlines pilots in 1963, so that played little part in the growing dissatisfaction with his leadership. The major source of contention by 1965 was that Charlie Ruby seemed incapable of dealing effectively with the ever more restrictive environment in which modern airline pilots worked. During the 1960s, the airline pilot's fate depended on a complex web of relationships between their employers, the public at large, and the government. A prime example of this was the issue of airport noise abatement. For the public at large, the overriding concern about the new jets was that they were noisy and that a modern airport was a bad neighbor. The solution to this problem was complex but at least one component of it was good public relations. 
something Ruby's critics said he was incapable of providing. A crisis occurred when the village of Hempstead, New York, sued in federal court to impose its own noise abatement standards upon the airline industry and the Federal Aviation Administration. Had the suit succeeded, it would have effectively closed Kennedy Airport and crippled the FAA's ability to set airport noise standards and policy. Working with the government and management, Ruby led the fight that beat back Hempstead's suit. Defeating it was one of Ruby's first highly visible actions as ALPA president, and it was about the last that won universal approval from the membership. By 1965, the rumblings of discontent with the nature and style of his leadership began to reach levels like those under Clancy Sayan. What were the major issues? Who were the leaders of the anti-Ruby faction? And why did they come within a single vote of forcing Ruby's resignation in 1968? A number of external issues arose in the mid-1960s that troubled Charlie Ruby. Among them were relations with the FAA, problems with air traffic control, and the perennial problem of aircraft and airport certification. But topping the list of external problems was skyjacking. As an old-fashioned law-and-order conservative, Charlie Ruby was outraged to the point of incoherence by the epidemic of skyjacking. And although most airline pilots fully shared his outrage, they worried because it made his public statements seem irresponsible. Like Dave Bankey's, Charlie Ruby's English was non-standard, filled with Southern vernacular and cadences. Although Ruby could use language subtly, and with extraordinary metaphorical power. The kind of pilot who was college-educated and accustomed to Sayan's flawless academic delivery, Ruby's appearances before congressional committees left a sour aftertaste. Nevertheless, by January 1966, discontent with Ruby's leadership had reached such proportions that his supporters moved to defuse it. It was an election year, and skirmishing over the presidency had already begun. Many ALPA members thought Ruby would voluntarily vacate the office and return to flying. His supporters, aware of the widespread feeling that his caretaker presidency was ending, decided to move boldly to keep him in office by putting the critics on the defensive and answering previous charges against Ruby's stewardship. The route they chose was to create a special committee of 15 pilots. All of the committee members had long experience in ALPA affairs and were charged with investigating Ruby's performance to evaluate his fitness for a second term. They forced a resolution through the executive committee, creating the Committee of 15, as it was informally called, and allowed Ruby to choose the pilots who would serve. This controversial move was bound to draw fire, partly because it was premised on the notion that no matter who is president, unanimity of purpose is difficult to achieve. 
The idea that any ALPA president would likely have trouble wasn't what the anti-Ruby forces wanted to hear. But for the moment, the Committee of 15 outflanked them. Also, the anti-Ruby forces were about to discover one of the oldest truths about politics. You can't beat somebody with nobody. Nobody emerged as a strong challenger to Ruby in 1966. The Committee of 15 gave Ruby a clean bill of health, aside from criticizing his laxness in educating the membership about ALPA's history and need, and the bad lack of communications between the President's Department and the staff. In one sense, the Committee of 15 was a great success because it drew opposition fire from Ruby to itself. Several MECs passed resolutions denouncing the Committee of 15 as illegal and a self-serving political body. The committee replied in its final report, We accept none of these allegations, and we also respectfully urge those who have submitted resolutions aimed at destroying the study group to review their bylaws and to try at least learn the basic structure of the association. Although Ruby's critics eventually forced a resolution through the board of directors dissolving the Committee of 15 by a vote of 84 to 63, there were 87 abstentions. As the large number of abstentions emphasized, Ruby's opponents built their case not on another individual, but rather only on opposition to Ruby. That approach wouldn't work. And since no viable alternative candidate emerged at the November convention, Ruby was re-elected to a second four-year term without opposition. The anti-Ruby forces, led by Gus Muirhide of Eastern Airlines and Rich Flournoy of TWA, were astonished at the ease with which the Ruby forces defeated them in 1966. One section of the Committee of 15's report dealt with an obvious failure on Ruby's part, one that the anti-Ruby faction felt strongly about it would subsequently use against him. The association is not taking advantage of the benefits to be derived through our affiliation with the AFL-CIO, the report stated. That sore spot offered another opening to the anti-Ruby group. Although ALPA owed everything to its connection with organized labor, the increasing affluence of its members, as jet pay came in, had made them receptive to the ideas of the Republican Party and other anti-labor elements. Charlie Ruby admitted to distancing himself from the AFL-CIO, and the thinly-veiled anti-unionism annoyed many ALPA members, although probably not a majority. Other areas of controversy between Ruby and Flournoy simmered. The age 60 retirement rule was badly handled, according to Flournoy, although Ruby admitted opposing it with only limited pressure, owing to the stagnant promotion list that made many younger pilots support it. But Ruby and others, perhaps more aware than Flournoy, of the difficulties of a selective approach to opposing the age 60 rule, decided to fight it out all or nothing. 
The move to Washington, D.C. also caused friction between Ruby and the group led by Flournoy and Muirhide. In 1962, the board of directors mandated a move of ALPA's headquarters from Chicago to Washington as soon as practical. There were good reasons for the move to Washington, among them the steady growth of the Washington office owing to the heavy volume of work assigned to it, but on the other hand, there were good reasons against the move. Although there was never any real reason for Alpa's headquarters to have been in Chicago, other than it being Dave Banky's home, Alpa had built up a large and loyal staff who would not leave their home city. The expense of the move was also a troubling question. Opposition to the Washington move was led by Homer Moden of Braniff. As one of Alpa's most respected, non-political, nuts-and-bolts types, Moden's views commanded wide respect, but probably not a majority opinion, at least in 1962, when the board mandated the move. In 1964, the board rescinded the move to Washington, only to have the 1966 board reinstate the move whether or not the majority of ALPA members still favored it. By then, what had been a vacillating policy was set. The best efforts of Moden, Dave Richwine of TWA, and many others to force a reconsideration of the move failed. The board's 1962 mandate of the move to D.C., and Ruby's resistance for one reason or another until 1968 provided one more round in the intensifying debate over Charlie Ruby's fitness to lead ALPA. Eventually, Ruby's alleged resistance over the Washington move provided a major charge against him in a formal vote of confidence. The August 1968 meeting of the Executive Committee saw the introduction of a formal resolution calling for Ruby to resign. Rich Flournoy of TWA led the move, alleging that Ruby had failed to carry out the 1962 Board of Directors requirement that ALPA move to Washington. In a bitter and heated session, lasting an entire day and into the next, the executive committee debated the formal censure of Charlie Ruby for his continuing refusal to respond to proper executive committee expression of its powers and duties. The remedy for Ruby's alleged misdeeds was that, in the best interest of the association, the president announced his resignation. A close vote prevented this recall attempt because the insurgents, led by Flournoy of TWA and Muirhead of EAL, lacked broad support from the rank and file. Stuart Hopkins sided with Ruby because he was bothered by the insurgents' methods. In Hopkins' opinion, an ALPA president owed his office to the conventions of the board of directors, which meant specifically to elect him. The executive committee, in Hopkins' opinion, had no business reversing the 1966 board that had elected Ruby. As if to confirm Hopkins's view, 
1968 board meeting in convention would subsequently refuse to recall Ruby during a formal proceeding. And so Charlie Ruby and his supporters overcame the rising forces that threatened not only his presidency, but Alba's cohesiveness as well. Ever since the American Airlines defection in 1963, Alpa had lived under the haunting fear of another major separatist break. In the considered opinion of Alpa insiders, another such defection would doom the organization. Furthermore, thoughtful observers of Alpa affairs believed that the executive committee itself, owing to its status, was largely responsible for the teetering instability that marked the period. Later, the Board of Directors meeting in convention would subsequently pull the Executive Committee's teeth, but not until 1974. Until then, Ruby and his successor, J.J. O'Donnell, would be dogged by an Executive Committee whose constitutional responsibilities were murky enough to allow it to interfere in daily administration. Both the Committee of Fifteen and outside management experts hired to study ALPA's administration had cited the inherent dangers of allowing a committee whose real purpose was to advise and consent to involve itself in direct administrative matters. The constitutionally induced weakness of the ALPA presidency was the result of government by committee, rather than government by a central officer charged with responsibility and authority. Put simply, the executive committee had some constitutional authority, but no direct responsibility to run ALPA. After Ruby's trouble with the executive committee, the board of directors began to recognize the basic problem. In 1968, the board amended the bylaws to spell out the president's responsibilities and authority. As a counter to the executive committee, the board provided for regular meetings of the 30-odd master chairman, the executive board, and gave them new policy-making power. But the executive committee, made up of the five regional vice presidents and the national officers, was only curbed not destroyed. Finally, in 1974, the continuing troubles generated by the committee led the board of directors to replace the regional vice presidents with five executive vice presidents elected from among the board of directors while in biennial session. The division of authority and responsibility between regionally elected vice presidents and master chairmen thus came to an end, but not before it had caused nearly two decades of turmoil. If only the 1974 reforms had come earlier, ALPA's history in the 1960s might have been vastly different. Although nothing is more uncertain than the might-have-beens of history, timely structural reforms in ALPA's governance might even have prevented the defection of the pilots of American Airlines in 1963. Holding ALPA together after that earthquake 
might well have been Charlie Ruby's finest hour. A lesser man might have lost Alpa altogether. Next time on Flying the Line, one of the founding pilot groups of the association decides to chart their own future. Thank you for listening. This has been part two of chapter 20 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins, copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alba.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALBA 2020. All rights reserved.